Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my privilege to share God's word with us this morning. We wrapped up our Acts series last week, and we'll begin a summer psalm series at the end of June. And until then, our pastors will share from different texts. Today, we'll, we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2. Would you please give your full undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word? Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, when the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificed, who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast. For he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we pray that through the work and the help of your Holy Spirit, your word would be vivid and clear to us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you make our hearts eager to receive, to learn, to repent, and to apply what it is you have to share to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hearing news about pastors being disqualified from ministry is nothing new. It's always tragic, but it's, it's nothing new. Over the past 10 years or so, however, I've been hearing, maybe you've been hearing, of pastors being disqualified from leadership, not for the reasons that we're typically used to, which tend to fall into two categories, infidelity and adultery, or they're just stealing from the church. But over the past 10 years, we've been hearing about church leaders, pastors, elders being disqualified from ministry for a new reason. And it's not because this new reason was never legitimate before. It was always legitimate. It's that for some reason we've overlooked it in the church. Before we get to that reason, let's look at Hophni and Phinehas. They're the priests in Israel. They're brothers. Their father is Eli, the high priest at this time. They are disqualified from ministry. God makes that very clear. He is displeased with them. And later on, he puts them both to death along with their father because he did not hold them accountable. And when we look at Hophni and Phinehas and we ask, why are they disqualified from being the priests of Israel? It's very evident. They're sleeping with the women who serve at the, at the entrance to the tabernacle. These women are not their wives. And they're also stealing from God, the choicest meats. These are the two categories that we're very accustomed to whenever we hear a church leader being disqualified. But what if they were neither committing adultery and infidelity, and what if they were not stealing from God, 
Would there be any other reason in the passage that we just read that would disqualify them from ministry? And the answer is yes. And you might be wondering, what was it? What else were they doing that I missed, that I didn't read or see, that would disqualify them, even if they weren't committing adultery or stealing from God? It says in verse 16, And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. This word force here is the same word used in the book of Judges to describe the way the commander of the Canaanites would oppress the Israelites. And this is the way Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of Israel who were there to communicate the blessings of God and mediate on behalf of the people, this is how they were treating God's people. Over the past 10 years, we're seeing more and more pastors and church leaders disqualified from ministry, not because of adultery or because they're stealing from the church, but because of what's called spiritual abuse. What's spiritual abuse? It's when church leaders, they act more like commanders than pastors. This morning, we're going to examine this kind of forcefulness and domineering in Christian leadership Because there's certainly a trend that we're seeing in recent years. We're going to look at how we can spot it, how we can stop it, and also how we can heal from it. First thing we're going to look at is a portrait of spiritual abuse. Hophni and Phinehas, they are a portrait of spiritual abuse. What is spiritual abuse? And how does it differ from other forms of abuse? Michael Kruger, he's a New Testament professor at RTS. He also saw this trend and he did a deep dive and wrote a book called Bully Pulpit on spiritual abuse, and he defines it as such. Spiritual abuse is when a spiritual leader, such as a pastor, elder, head of a Christian organization, wields his position of spiritual authority in such a way that he manipulates, domineers, bullies, and intimidates those under him as a means of maintaining his own power and control, even if he is convinced he is seeking biblical and kingdom-related goals. So what makes it spiritual abuse is that the person is in a position of spiritual authority and that gives them a different kind of angle and leverage and weightiness that is different than a secular organization because there is a sense that pastors, elders, spiritual leaders, that they're appointed by God in somehow, some way, that they are approved by God somehow, some way. There is a sense that the spiritual leader isn't just doing any kind of work, but they're doing God's work. Compared to non-religious organizations, those in spiritual positions of authority, they have a special level of trust given to them and respect because of their titles, because they serve God or work for God. I wonder what you're thinking when you read this definition of spiritual abuse Maybe you're thinking, I didn't know spiritual abuse was even a thing. Maybe you're thinking about a previous church, a former pastor or leader. Maybe things are starting to click right now. Like you were really second-guessing yourself, and in the past, you just knew something was off, but you just couldn't put your finger on it. And now you finally have a definition 
Maybe you're realizing your instincts were valid in the past. Maybe you're wondering, since when was this disqualifying? And the answer to that is always. It always was. First Peter chapter 5. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. This word domineering means to act like a master, to lord it over others. Spiritual abuse is when pastors, elders, church leaders, they start acting like commanders who just care about getting the job done, who only care about the results, or they start acting like CEOs. It's all about the branding and the bottom line and the platforming. That's not to say that there aren't business and corporate principles that church leaders and churches can apply to their own organizations. They can absolutely benefit from them. But pastors and elders and officers aren't CEOs who do shepherding on the side. No, they're shepherds who may apply business principles to their leadership in church. In 1 Timothy 3, this word violent is an interesting word. It doesn't necessarily mean physical violence. It could be translated as bruiser. Someone who inflicts bruises. And we can certainly bruise with our words. Michael Kruger defines that word as a bully. Spiritually abusive leaders, they leave staff and members bruised and injured. And they do that with their words and the word, the Bible. Because if there's anything pastors are pretty good at, it's their words and using the word. So at what point and to what degree is it considered spiritual abuse? It's actually pretty difficult to pin down. Michael Kruger says that it's not as black and white as other forms of abuse, which is why so few pastors are actually held accountable for this. Because if a pastor has an affair, if he's stealing from the church, there's a, there's a smoking gun or there's a paper trail, it's more obvious. It's actually pretty difficult. But the more I learn about spiritual abuse, the more I realize it's one of those things which makes it difficult to pin down. We can either overthink it or overlook it. We can overthink it. Everything is spiritual abuse. Every time someone leaves a church, it must be because of spiritual abuse. Every time the pastor confronts me because of my sin or rebukes me, that's spiritual abuse. That's overthinking it. But you can also overlook it. That's just his personality. They're just perfectionists. That's just first-generation culture. That's just his leadership style. And I think we tend to overlook it more than we overthink it. The pastors I know, they love the Lord. They love their churches. Preparing this sermon, I didn't have any person or church in mind. But I do see a trend. I know sin is real. I know the damage that Satan can do if he can get a foothold in the leader's life and the blast radius of hurt that he can cause. And I also know that just because a church or a church leader is on the right path right now, that they doesn't mean that they won't veer off later on. 
something that it's important for you to all know, because I know this because I'm a pastor, is that pastors wrestle with mixed motives all the time. We're sinners. One well-known pastor, he realized after examining his own heart that he wanted God to be glorified. He really did, as long as it was through him. When I, when I read that, I resonated with it. I want God to be glorified. But I also want it to be through me. I want to ride on the coattails of God being glorified so that I can get some of that glory. And we have mixed motives. Church leaders have mixed motives. That pastor wrote that years ago in a book. And I just recently found out this month he was placed on indefinite leave because of allegations of spiritual abuse. In the passage we read, it says that Hophni and Phinehas, they treated the Lord's sacrifice with contempt. They had a low view of God. They were, treat, they were treating God's sacrifice as such. They did not regard God as holy. They lost sight of the majesty of God. And yes, church leaders may have at one point that sense of the majesty and glory and the privilege of their office and position, but they can lose sight of that. That's very possible. And when that happens, like Hophni and Phinehas, we treat the Lord's sacrifice with contempt. In other words, they were using the sacrificial system for self-serving purposes. They continued to do their job, not because they were so in love with the Lord and in love with his people and cared for them because they were benefiting from it. I think it's akin to a pastor using the church and its resources to serve himself, to build his own platform, to massage his ego. This is what is known as celebrity culture, which is not new to Christendom. If you read in the New Testament, celebrity culture was thriving among the Greeks. It's just way more pronounced now. It's actually easier all the tools for celebrity culture are at our disposal, and that heightens the temptation. But maybe you're wondering, is there even any status or fame to be found within Christian circles? Isn't that kind of lame? I don't know if you're thinking that. But there is status and recognition. The Christian pond is not as big as the professional sports world or the music industry. They're never going to achieve that kind of status and fame, but you just have to be the big fish in your little pond. The Reformed Presbyterian pond is a small pond, but there's status to be found there. The Asian American Christian circles, it is a small pond, but there's recognition to be had. There's a measure of fame to be had and renown. Jesus' disciples, James and John, they are caught up with seeking recognition, if you remember from the Gospels. They ask Jesus, can we sit at your left and right hand? In other words, they wanted to be platformed. And they wanted to use Jesus in order to be platformed. Platforming has become a buzzword in the past 10 years or so. Platforming is about making a pastor or leader more visible through social media, YouTube, speaking engagements. It's just another word for promoting, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that either. Authors have to promote, churches have websites, they post sermons. But like many neutral, practical things, it can become sinful temptations. And the question is, is, is the ultimate goal for the leader to be more seen and known, or is it for Jesus to be more seen and known? 
and you can't tell from the outside. That requires a deeper heart assessment. Jesus knew James and John's heart. I mean, he's God, so he can see their heart. And he corrects them on the spot. He says this in Mark 10. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're not Jesus. We can't see people's hearts. So what do we do? What can we do? Here are some practical pointers for us to spot and stop spiritual abuse, the second point. Well, spiritual abuse, for a variety of reasons, can actually be very difficult to detect. Here are some reasons. The first, the leader changed. That leader you hired is not the same leader today. They changed. Maybe success started getting to their head and their heart, and that change was gradual, and you couldn't tell anymore. Or maybe the church culture changed as well. Later in 1 Samuel, the Israelites, they would demand a king. Not just any king. They said, we want a king who is just like the nation's. They wanted a king that would make Israel successful economically, politically, in terms of their resources, just like other the nation, just like the other nations. And in the same way, churches, we can lose sight and we can forget what the church is supposed to do. We can borrow the worldly definition of success and apply that to the church. And when that happens, you're off the rails. It's devastating. And maybe the leader's a high performer. It was obvious, Hophni and Phineas, they were using their spiritual positions for unspiritual ends. They were domineering, forceful for ungodly purposes. But this is the tricky part. What if the high-performing leader is domineering for what appears to be godly ends and he produces results. What if they bully their way to get their way with something like missions or the church budget or hiring particular staff? And what if that produces results? It's possible for leaders and churches to fall in love with success. Attendance is going up. Budget is going up. The leader put the church on the map. He must be approved by God. He must have the favor of God. How else do you explain it? Everything he does is working. And what they tend to do then is give that particular leader more leniency when it comes to character and more rope. Some ways to spot spiritual abuse, several ways. The first is, do they always get their way? And how do they get their way? Do they intimidate? Do they pull, I'm the pastor card? Do they intimidate? Do they twist scripture? Abuse 
Spiritual abuse survivors, they routinely testify that the most devastating part about their experience is the way the abusive pastor would twist scripture. He would use scripture to attack, to demean, to control them. And many of those victims, they testify that even many years later, they can't get their pastor's voice out of their head when they read the Bible. What happens when they don't get their way? How do they receive and respond to criticism? Are they aggressive? Passive-aggressive? Do they shame or silence those who disagree? Do they cut people out? Do they push people out of the church? Are members and staff afraid to disagree with these particular leaders because of how they've known they responded in the past? They're fearful to disagree or offer constructive criticism because the leader has a history of being dismissive and demeaning and defensive. They'll make it sound like you have no idea what you're talking about, so just shut up. What do the people under the care and leadership look like? Let's look at Ezekiel 34. This is God speaking against the evil shepherds in Israel. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. you look at a church and the members and the staff, they're sick, they're hurting, they're burnt out. They're neglected, they're leaving, they're lost. Can you put that all on the leader? No. There are plenty of reasons why they may be hurting or burnt out. God also talks about in Ezekiel 34 that other members hurt each other too. And I know people who've even left our church, not because of the leadership, because of conflict between members and they've been hurt by each other. But this is one way or one thing you can look at to see if leadership is abusive. How do we stop it? There has to be accountability. Eli, he failed to hold his sons accountable. Verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded from my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people. Israel. Eli, he let it slide for way too long. The longer you let it slide, it's like a runaway train. The harder it is to stop. And Eli was their father. It's hard to hold his own family accountable, his own. It's hard for leaders to hold their friends accountable, their peers accountable. But without accountability, it'll never stop. God held Hophni and Phinehas and Eli all accountable. And you're wondering, why Eli? Because Eli failed. He knew. Eli knew. God put him to death too. He failed to hold his sons accountable. It's hard additionally to hold our leaders accountable because honestly it can feel like you're bringing a knife to a gunfight Maybe you thought a leader 
because of their character should be disqualified or suspended or at least rebuked or admonished. But it's hard because everyone else in the church loves them. They're so well-received. They're endorsed by other leaders, well-known, respected leaders outside of the church. And holding a leader accountable, there can be backlash. Kruger, he talks about how abusers are notorious, notoriously litigious because they're so familiar with the church court system and also the legal system, and they'll use that against those who would stand up and oppose them. Which is why practically, I, I do want to share this, that if you ever feel like there is a leader who needs to be held accountable, our church, any church, to know that we are a Presbyterian denomination, we encourage you to informally address this leader, but sometimes that doesn't work. And for non-denominational independent churches, that usually leads to a dead end. But I do want to inform and equip all of you here, we are a Presbyterian church, that there's a formal way, actually, to hold leaders accountable. There's a court system, there's the session, there's the presbytery, and then there's the general assembly. You probably didn't know this, but you can file actually a formal written complaint to the clerk of the session, one of our elders. They have to respond to it. They have to investigate and give a judgment. If they do not respond, and if, or if you deem their judgment unsatisfactory, you can appeal to the next court in the presbytery. They have to respond to it. This is in the the book of church order and our Presbyterian polity. They have to investigate. They have to give a judgment. If you deem that unsatisfactory, you can appeal to the General Assembly. And the prayer and the hope is in each court system that there would be godly elders and pastors who would take it very seriously because they love the church. They love God's people. They are broken when his people are broken. And there would be a fair assessment and discipline if necessary. They may be admonished or rebuked. That leader may be suspended from office, deposed, or even excommunicated. And I share this not to be alarming, but it's because as a pastor, I know this well. And abusive pastors would not want their members to know this. It's an invitation to keep all leaders accountable. And for the leaders, pastors, elders, deacons, deaconesses, shepherdesses, Sunday school teachers, youth group teachers, small group leaders, you are all in a position of spiritual authority. The children look up to you. The youth students look up to you. You are in a position of spiritual authority. How do we avoid this kind of self-seeking, platform-seeking, domineering kind of leadership? The late Tim Keller, he was asked, how did he account for the longevity of his ministry? In other words, how did he make it? He pastored nine years in Virginia and almost three decades at Redeemer in New York. He said two things. The first is personal accountability. He said you have to have people who are authorized to speak into your life. And you have to invite that. And so the question is, who is authorized in your life to hold you accountable? Secondly, he said you have to have communion with God. You have to have a vibrant prayer life. 
He said, the more successful your church will be, the more excuses you will have and the busier you will be to not pray. And he says that if you don't pray, that's utterly deadly. He asks, are you having fellowship, regular, intimate fellowship and communion with God? And do you feel like you can live, that you cannot live without it? That really got to me. For a leader, and this applies to any believer, to feel like you cannot live without spending time with the Lord in prayer in his word. This does not apply just to leadership. It applies to your marriages. It applies with your walk to the Lord, your parenting, every area of life. I think the leaders who last, the leaders who make it into the end, they're not the ones who never have inflated egos. They're not the ones who never seek their own glory or never seek a platform. No, they're the ones who spot it faster and repent more quickly because of accountability. They're the ones who grieve more deeply because they're already walking with the Lord and communing with him. Pastor Harold shared with our staff and officers regarding Tim Keller that those who didn't know him personally, they know him well for his preaching, his books, his teaching, his cultural analysis. But those who are closest to him, those who've met him, they know him for his kindness. And I think that was humbling for many of us who read that. Because when we think about Tim Keller and what we want to be like in terms of him is his platform. We want to be known just like him for his writing and his preaching. The true legacy is being known for that character, for kindness. I want to close with a couple things. How can we heal from spiritual abuse? Just like any kind of abuse, the victims can feel so much fear Shame, anger, and depression. They can feel unsafe. They can feel trauma. What is trauma? It's when an experience is stuck in your body. It's when you re-experience something in the past as though if it were in the present. Your mind rationally knows you're safe, but your body is reacting otherwise. Victims of spiritual abuse talk about how they're triggered by prayer or a certain praise song, or reading the Bible, or just being in church. Not only that, but they have a lot of doubts. That trauma produces so many doubts. This is what's called profound disorientation. Many victims of trauma feel this, that everything they thought they knew, they question it now. They don't know anymore. And that's probably the most tragic part about spiritual abuse that everything they thought they knew about God and his kindness and his forgiveness and his faithfulness and his love, they start to question that. Can I trust God? I don't know anymore. Is he good? I doubt that. Does he care? They may give up altogether. There may be some of you here who are hurting from the past, from past experiences from a previous church, previous church leader. Maybe it was just so hard for you to even consider returning to church, looking for a church, or maybe it's really hard for you to even be here this morning. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm not going to pretend that it was easy for you to 
to come out this morning. And I, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was praying much for victims of spiritual abuse and for their healing, for your healing. If that's you, we are so sorry that was your experience. Uh, we want to be a part of the healing process. It's so heartbreaking because what spiritual abuse does is that it creates a painful rift between the place where you should find healing, the church, and the person where you're going to find the most comfort, which is God. If you would like, we would love to talk with you. You can reach out to us. We'll pray for you. We'll connect you to the right people. And if you're willing and if you would like, we can refer you to counselors and therapists. However slow and however long it takes for you to heal, we want to walk with you. And to close, the biggest part of healing from abusive spiritual leaders is by looking at the Good Shepherd. Let's look at a portrait of the Good Shepherd. Ezekiel 34. This is God speaking. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. God promises to care for his people. And he did that through the line of David by sending the perfect shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 12, 20, Jesus says, or speaking about Jesus, a, bru a bruised reed he will not break. Jesus is not abusive. Jesus is not heavy-handed. Jesus wasn't seeking fame. Jesus already had the throne. He already had the crown. He already had all of the power. His name was already above all names. He was not seeking fame. No, he gave that up to seek us. He gave that up so that sinners who are dead in their sin and enemies of God and deserving the wrath of God could be reconciled with God and forgiven and be called children of God. In Philippians, Paul writes that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that when Jesus became human, he was no longer equal with God. But it means that Jesus wasn't clinging to the privileges and the recognition of being God. He gave that up when he came to earth in order that we might be saved. Satan tried to tempt him to seek fame and glory, but Jesus didn't bite. He knew that path was to the cross. In the garden and the night when Jesus was betrayed, Peter drew his sword to defend Jesus. And Jesus said, Peter, put away your sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to the Father in heaven and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? 
Jesus had already all of the divine privileges. But he set that aside. He didn't seek it. He didn't cling to it. Jesus didn't come to build a platform. He came to go to the cross, and he did just that. And that is the portrait of a good shepherd. We look to Christ. Leaders, we look to Christ. He is our model. He did not come to serve, but to be served, but to serve. And for those who are hurting, look beyond the weak leaders, the sinful leaders, and I hope that you can look to Christ and know that He is here, He is good, He has not changed. Let's pray. Father God, as we go to the Lord's table now, would you show us in the bread and the cup a portrait of our good shepherd? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.